0: Today on The Ticket Tapes, we hear from Paul, a former journalist and features writer whose daughter saved his life when he suffered a sudden cardiac arrest.
1: I'm a super fit guy at the top of my game who, who just died. And I think it took a while for it to sink in, probably because of that. So I would say there wasn't a defining moment when it sunk in, but when everybody had left me that night, I do remember lying quietly in the bed, and, and I do remember it coming across me in waves of distress, really.
0: From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Molly Tresiden. On The Ticket Tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Paul talks to me about his fateful game of squash, picking yourself back up after a near-death experience, and what he's been doing with his second chance at life. Paul, cool. could you start by just telling us a bit about yourself?
1: Sure, Molly, yes. I, I think I've always sort of thought I've led something of a charmed life, really. And I mean that only in the sense of the um, somehow, more probably more by luck than judgment, the people and the projects and the places that I've been experiencing and been exposed to have just allowed me to play to my, my strengths and my, my preferences, I suppose. I started life as a journalist on a weekly paper, Got a lucky break. Every journalist needs one. Mine was a, a story of a guy called Peter Sutcliffe who was the Yorkshire Ripper, happened to be around when he was caught um, and that sort of propelled me down to the old Bailey for the court case and as a result of that onto various the crime desk of various morning and regional newspapers and, and, and kick-started a, an, an amazing career in journalism that I could have really only, uh, only dreamed of having. After what, 15 years uh, just decided we wanted a break and, uh, and as a family, we went for an adventure to Australia. I don't think we had a, necessarily a, a, a hard and fast plan to do anything or go anywhere, but the girls were very portable. Our daughters and, and my wife um, very much was looking forward to, to an adventure. We arrived in Perth on the West Coast for what we thought was going to be sort of a gap year and it, it turned into 11 gap years. Um, during that time... I uh, set up another writing business, always seemed to be uh, the best thing to do, never to be too far away from the written word. i would made one or two pretty good business decisions, uh, but, but one catastrophic schoolboy error that pretty much cost us everything. And so it meant that I had to uh, look sharp. I had to decide on, on doing something slightly different. So moved into communications for a large organization in the mining sector called Caterpillar, they obviously saw something that appealed to them. Within sort of five years, I'd worked my way up uh, the corporate ladder there, uh, running international sales. They moved us to Dubai to run their businesses in the Middle East, and then about five years ago, nearly six, we got a call from uh, a UK business, a family-owned business, who needed somebody to take care of their uh, sales, marketing, and commercial operations. Not a huge business, about a thousand people. 150 sort of mini b and as a building company. Um, so we returned to the UK, to our native Yorkshire, and began the process of um, continuing a career to get myself up what I call the corporate ladder, uh, grappling my way to the very top. And while all that was going on, I was also working my way up the, the fitness ladder. Always enjoyed a great deal of fitness. I'd played international rugby uh, a few times for Scotland, under-21s, Done half marathons and settled into interval training, and spinning actually. So I guess I'd arrived at sixty years old, Molly, with mind and body in in pretty great shape. Keeping an eye on cholesterol, like we all have to at that age, but otherwise, you know, at the top of my little corporate tree and at the and, the, and at the top of the fitness curve where I wanted to be. So yeah, that's that's sort of that's sort of where I I came from when when disaster struck, that's where I was.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like life was pretty good. And then can you take us to the 23rd of February, 2020 and what happened on that day?
1: Well, I would ordinarily, (laughs) yeah, I would ordinarily say it was um, just like any other Sunday morning, but it it only was for a couple of hours. Um, My routine, being a bit of a creature of habit, uh, my routine had me on my uh, spin bike, doing interval training on a Sunday morning. I uh, would do two sessions on a Sunday, one in the morning and one in the evening. But on this particular Sunday, my my daughter, Sophie, who was 22 uh, at the time, uh, was home with us from university and um, had said, Dad, do you fancy a game of squash? Uh, my boyfriend, Jake, and a friend from university is over and we could do with four to make up two courts. And I said, yeah, of course. And um, Jack, the chap from university, she said is a 30-year-old squash coach. So I thought. Well, I used to play squash forty years ago. I'll give the little bugger a run for his money. <laughs> um, so off we went up to the local squash centre in Harrogate and um, and began the process of of of, of realising rapidly that having not played squash for forty years, it was you know it was harder than I thought. Fortunately, I had a very high level of sort of residual fitness, but playing against a thirty year old squash coach meant it wasn't so much a game as running around like a Labrador puppy while he stood in the middle without even taking his tracksuit off and um, I I do in hindsight remember thinking I don't remember it being quite as as knackering as this but I was tired but but not not exhausted Um, and then we swapped courts uh, for the final sort of 10 or 15 minutes of the time that we booked them for and I was playing with daughter Sophie who hadn't played squash before while the two boys played together in in the in the court next door and I said to Sophie do you want to have a match do you want to just knock up. And she said, no, I'd, I'd like to play seriously, but I don't really know the rules. So if we could go through the rules, and I said, okay, well, you stand there, and I stand here. Sent down to pick up the ball to serve, and, um, and that was it. Bang. Um, the out-of-hospital sudden cardiac arrest. No, no warning bells, straight into the big stuff. Um, according to Sophie, um, I just went down like, a, like an oak tree, and, um, and so began... My journey from, well, death, I suppose, to um, to where I am today, to talking to you, back to sort of full fitness. But um, it was a pretty it was a pretty scary time. I, I mean, I was very fortunate to have with me um, a daughter who had been in an elite sportswoman herself, so she was reasonably familiar with elements of um, not so much CPR, but but Had been through first aid courses as it relates to being a, a, a coach herself, so she didn't flat though. She's a level headed girl, and um, uh, immediately, well, at first, I think she thought being a bit of a practical joker that I was um, that I was joking. It took her a, a minute or so to figure out that, that I clearly wasn't. I was um, I was, I was out of it, I'd, I'd gone down very heavily. I, I now realize on, on my shoulder, you don't get a chance to put your arms out when the lights go off, so um. She was galvanized into action miraculously, ran next door to see the boys, uh, instructed one of them to run to the changing room to get their mobile phone, call 999, uh, and had also the presence of mind to get her boyfriend Jake back into the squash court with me and to start the process of administering CPR. Um, he didn't have a, a, you know, an absolutely clear idea of how it needed to be done, but she was able to give him a bit of guidance. She then ran off to the far end of the club trying to find a manager, somebody in authority, and trying to find a defibrillator. Uh, eventually, she managed to find both. Uh, the manager g- grabbed the defibrillator, ran upstairs, and between the three of them, they began the process of trying to, trying to get me back. Um, we, we, we know that that all took nine or 10 minutes. Uh, seemed, I'm sure, to them a, a lot longer. But after 10 minutes, um, the ambulance turned up. we know from their records that uh, they raced in um moved sophie and the boys out of the way congratulated them obviously for what they managed to do and began the process of of administering whatever they administer in that sort of situation they they too had a good few goers the the the, the um the club's defibrillator hadn't done hadn't done the trick so that was ten minutes me out of it and it took the paramedics another according to their records, another 12 minutes um, and several shocks to get me to come back. In the meantime, my wife had arrived on two wheels into the car park and had raced upstairs to the squash court to a lot of commotion. And, um, and they were just shaking their heads. You know, they'd, um, they just said, we can't get him back. He's, we, he's gone. And, um, and that was, you know, very, very traumatic for uh, my daughter, my wife. Um, and, and there was a lot of people, a lot of medics in the squash court with me. And then, you know, by some miracle, they suddenly said, we've got it, he's back. Um, but after 22 minutes uh, with such a, a slim chance of surviving the trauma anyway, um, after that length of time, there was a fear that there may well be some neurological damage. They, they, they wanted to get me to, to the coronary care unit to intensive care as quickly as possible. The air ambulance couldn't get me there as fast as the road ambulance could, but both were there. There were two or three ambulances at that point. Um, got me downstairs, just got me straight into the ambulance and, and straight to, to my local hospital, which was very more than capable of, of dealing with, with, with traumas like me. And then the first I knew, I'm in bed with my hands being held by my wife on one side and my eldest daughter on the other. It was, it was a bizarre occurrence and um and i'd you know i'm still coming to terms with it a year later
0: and was that just later that same day that you'd come around
1: yeah i mean it was um i i understand it was it was about 40 to 45 minutes after leaving the squash center the the journey to Harrogate hospital took you know a matter of minutes and um and they had to do a fair amount of work when i got there but um but did it you know successfully so i um you know, I was a little bit bewildered sitting up, you know, what the hell just happened and can I have a tea, please? It was it was a, the, the look on everybody's face really was, was was priceless because I don't think that there'd been some people who weren't sure that I'd be back at all. My wife tells me um, she never doubted that I would return. Um, she, she somehow had, somehow had been told to believe that I wasn't going to die that day. Uh, or at least wasn't going to remain dead, and um, but everybody was, you know, rather bewildered and and looked as though they were at a loss, like I was. But for me, it was just really a question of not really knowing exactly what happened. I know that um, boyfriend Jake uh, was nothing if not vigorous in his administration of CPR. So um, we knew at that point, after some X-rays, that four ribs had been broken. So I'd ripped the rotator cuff that on the shoulder that took all the weight. Um, so physically I was, you know, I'd had pain relief. So I wasn't really aware of, I was aware of the damage, but, but I wasn't in immense pain. It was really just a question of just trying to, trying to come down to earth really and figure out, you know, what had happened and and come to terms with it. Um, but it was, it was, it was almost surreal. Um, by then, um, then my parents, uh, my uh, wife and daughter, Sophie left me and, um, and went home so that I could get some rest. By that time, they'd contacted my youngest daughter, who was on an internship in Paris. She'd fled from the office, jumped on the first available flight, and was arriving in her airport that night. She turned up at the hospital. And of course, by the time everybody returned at eight o'clock at night, I'm sat up reading a magazine, you know, whistling a song kind of thing. And and I'd love to say, you know, everybody said, so what happens then? What do you remember? Do you have a you have a guy with a white beard at the end of the bed with a finger beckoning you? And, and, and there's none of that. The, the, there's no recollection whatsoever from the point at which I picked up the squash ball to serve to the point at which I woke up with the people I love holding my hand um, looking totally bewildered. Um, and, and obviously wondering whether or not I was going to be able to hold a conversation. I understand that, that step one was waking up. Step two was, was actually talking. And, um, and when I appeared able to do both normally, uh, there was a sort of collective cheer and sigh of relief. It was, um, it was yeah, it was, a, it was a hell of a day for them, I would say. Yeah.
0: And do you remember, was there a, a sort of a moment where it really sunk in that you'd had a cardiac arrest, having had no previous problems with your heart? Well,
1: they do explain, I mean, they were brilliant, the team, the CCU, the Coronary Care Unit specialist staff, it's an amazing ward and and, and <clears throat> my exposure to them up till that point um, you know obviously I'd been the beneficiary of their expertise and their care. I think I think the only way I could answer that is to say that it was explained to me that I'd had a cardiac arrest. I, 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 I think perhaps I was thinking well I don't remember having the elephant sat on my chest and the and the pain in the jaw or the arm you know as in a heart attack. Because uh, I think you know a lot of people that I've spoken to since think it's a heart attack that that you have that kills you, and you know I now realise it's it's the heart attack that often leads to the cardiac arrest that kills you. If it's going to, I think to go straight to the main course and miss out the starter um, is just a, it, it's even it's even harder to get your head around. So, so because I was, you
0: hadn't had a heart attack,
1: yeah, because I never had a heart attack. I, I just I just, I'm, I'm you know a super fit guy at the top of my game who who just who just died. And I think it, it, it took a while for it to sink in, probably because of that. So I would say there wasn't a defining moment when it sunk in, but when everybody had left me that night, I do remember lying quietly uh, in the bed and, and I do remember it, it coming across me in waves of distress, really. I remember bursting into tears, which, uh, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, I'm just not given to do that. And I just remember being being overwhelmed with a sense of distress and gratitude and just total bewilderment. And because of my background and, you know, my inquisitive nature, just desperately seeking answers to the questions that, you know, the why and the, and, and, and the, and the why me and, and the will it happen again? No, nobody, could, nobody could really explain at that point or had explained to me why it happened. Nobody was able to tell me... Um, whether it was likely to happen to me again, either there and then, or the next time I got out of bed to stand up, so I think the sinking in was more a feeling of, well, what happens next then?
0: Hmm. Yeah. Did you ever feel sort of angry? You know, you'd done, you had kept yourself fit, and you know, you were sort of in a, as good a state as you could possibly be, in, yet this thing still happened to you.
1: It's a, it's a, it's an emotional roller coaster, and and I. If I underestimated anything i certainly't didn't underestimate the road to physical recovery. I had a feeling that that was going to take a while. I've broken God knows how many bones before playing you know fairly high level sport, so I was fine uh, what I had underestimated in my ignorance and naivety was the impact psychologically uh, and over the first few days, apart from being um you know watched and and looked after by you know, expert medical stuff, you, you do get a lot of... I got a lot of visits from uh, ladies who were clearly looking at me and talking to me from a psychological point of view. I didn't quite know it at the time, to be honest, because they don't have a big badge or a sign over the head saying, you know, we're, we're from the psych team. In fact, they're nurses, but they're specialist nurses. And, and, I, and, I, and I think I, I realised that there was... I realised that the journey back psychologically... And emotionally, despite feeling my normal sort of slightly arrogant bomb-proof self again, um, except for all these bloody wires everywhere, you know, I was having pain relief from my shoulder, pain relief from my ribs. So it was all very sore. But that's physio- physiological. In a weird way, Molly, being in pain meant I was alive. And I do remember on many occasions at night being in absolute agony but almost welcoming the pain as as a beacon of reassurance that I was still alive. It was the psychological stuff when when, when these lovely ladies came to talk to me. And and I thought, well, you're lovely, aren't you? You, You're just so, your bedside manners amazing. You're articulate. You're considerate. You're tuning into how I'm feeling. It was only after a few days when I asked, so who were they, that they said, well, that's part of the psych team, that I realized just how good they were at their job. So I don't think, I think they helped to assuage any feelings of of anger, just to answer mm-hmm. your question. I think the thing I do remember is that people said, bloody hell, you were lucky. And I just remember thinking, well, I wasn't unlucky for it to happen to in the first place. And so if there was a source of, of angst, it, it was more to do with the fact that it happened in the first place. Um, I, I was obviously f- felt fortunate that I've recovered from it, especially because the circumstances indicated that I probably shouldn't have, certainly uh, shouldn't have done so intact, as it were, mentally. Um, It was more to do with the fact that, well, why did it happen? Why did it happen to me in the first place? You know, why me? You go through that process, I think. So I dealt with it physiologically better than psychologically, I think, certainly in the Mm -hmm. early days. I was more concerned about my daughter. You know, you should never be exposed to seeing your father you know, foaming at the mouth and riding on the floor and then not moving at all for 20 minutes, despite people pumping his chest. It's not, you know, she, I felt, needed as much help as anybody. Um, So my feelings were really more geared around, you know, God, what what must she be going through rather than what I was going through?
0: Mm. And can you talk me through um, those two parts of your recovery over... You know, it's been just over a year now. Um, So both the the physical side, but also that emotional side.
1: Yeah, it was, the shoulder was the interesting one. Bizarrely, the ribs, I've broken ribs before. And and when you crack ribs, oh my God, it is seriously sore. But, you know, everybody reassured me, even the ambulance people came to me just to to check that I really was still alive. Uh, And we had a bit of a laugh and they talked me through their records because, you know, I'm a bit of a pain when it comes to just, curiosity and wanting to know the detail and, and they said you know you know without putting too fine a point on it if cpr's done well and done properly you know there's a very strong likelihood that ribs would be broken but that's a small price to pay for having it done properly so physiologically the shoulder the ribs it was it was um it took nine days for me to come to terms with um really come to terms with what i had gone through and to make to start making some recovery And and then on the ninth day, I'd say I was struck by the one thing that has probably had the most momentous impact on on me and the thing I think about the most. So I'm reassured or I'd reassured myself that this was a freak electrical storm. There was was no, it wasn't plumbing, so there was no stents or bypasses or anything like that. Uh, This was electrical. I'd had an electrical short circuit. And it had happened at the end of a vigorous squash match at the time when I'd had a pretty tough time at work, 80, 90 hours a week for many, many years, but I'd, I'd resigned myself to the fact that that was me. So I thought, right, I've overdone it on the work front. I've got too stressed. I've got worked up. Maybe squash was the trigger for this because however fit I am, squash is a weird old game. You know, you've got to play it at 1,000 miles an hour. And I and I did, and every every point I lost was was me motivated to work and run even harder. So I'm thinking, well, maybe I brought this on. Nobody can tell me exactly what caused it, but maybe I brought this on. And then I'm lying there, having been in the lap of luxury, really, and and, and massively attentive care for nine days, doing nothing, reading my Kindle, when I suddenly have a run of what they call VT, which is ventricular tachycardia, which is where, well, when you're in a hospital environment on a coronary care unit, all hell breaks loose. It's code red. Uh, uh, suddenly, all I know is that the, the walls are coming in on me. And I'm and I'm my heart has has raced. Not come across it before, and uh, and everything and, and everything goes bonkers. Alarms go off, you can hear bed pans being dropped in the next room while everybody legs it into the coronary care unit. Loads and loads of people around the bed. It only lasted for eight seconds, but just as I was about to effectively faint, um, I, I came back and um, and, and uh, I didn't faint, and so I was fully aware of everything that was going on. It was it was it, it was symptomatic, but only in the sense that my heart set off racing, and I was told it was a run of VT and, um, and ventricular tachycardia as a, as a big deal, so. It was a momentous moment for me because I thought I'd, I'd rationalized it. I'd come to terms with what had happened and that, well, probably better. shouldn't play squash again. So, and then suddenly, having, having laid still and minded my own business, I'm back again into a, a, a situation where I just didn't know what was going on. And I think that that, for me, was, meant that all of the time that I thought I'd recovered had come to nothing and I was back to square one again. And I think that the telling part about that and, the why, and why it's so relevant to the recovery is that it's the bit that stayed with me. It's the bit that reminds me that any moment this could happen again. So I was whisked off after that to Leeds to our large hospital where they did the cardiac MRI. They said to me that it was an electrical failure. And I said, well, what causes electrical failure? And they said, scar tissue. There's been a tiny bit of scar tissue left behind from when you had your heart attack. And I said, sorry, for when I had what? And they said, yeah, for when you had your, your heart attack. I said, no, 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 you must be mistaken. I've never had a heart attack. I can assure you I would know if I'd had a heart attack. And they said, you didn't know that you had a heart attack. But let me tell you, at some point in your life, you had a very small one. And that very small heart attack that might have just seemed like a, uh, a point at which you had to pause at the end of a workout or something is what caused some scar tissue. And it was the scar tissue that interrupted the current and gave you your cardiac arrest. And for that reason, we can't tell you whether it's going to happen again. What we can do is we can fit you with an ICD, um, which is a, my own personal paramedic, a defibrillator in my shoulder. Uh, so they whisked me over to Leeds a second time and uh, fitted the ICD. And, and I suppose that, to answer your question, triggered the, the, the recovery process, it it, it was. It was. It, it's a. It's a telling reminder. It's a. It's a badge of honor. It's a. It's a damn big thing. When they said they were putting a computer in your chest, at first I thought they'd put an iMac in there because it was. It was huge and stuck out, and it's. It's. It's actually. It's, it's not. It's not very small, and still sticks out now. But but I. I sort of. I wear it and touch it with a smile on my face now, um, rather than, than feeling you know self-conscious about it because it just reminds me of, the fact that if it does happen again. Um, at least I've got somebody with me who will step in and, and, and revive me. Um, and that for me, I think meant that although I'd gone back over, it sort of gave me a bit of a reality check that there really is, I needed to, I needed to stop being silly. And I needed to see this for what it was a very significant period of rehabilitation and recovery that laid ahead. Cause I think up till then, I just thought I'm drumming my fingers on the desk. Can I go home yet? But, um, I likened it the other day to somebody who was saying so 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 you get this big thing happening the big the the big strike of of lightning really and um and then what you just you just recovered you just get better slowly and and it's weird You, you do get better from the big bang the earthquake as i was explaining it to somebody before um the earthquake is what everybody sees and everybody hears that's your cardiac arrest in my mind and um and it's massive but you come home after the earthquake and you know the furniture's all upside down and the pots and pans are spilled out. You put them all back in the cupboard and you tidy everything up. And, and that, to me, metaphorically, was, was dealing with the ribs and the, and the, and the shoulder. And, and that was doing the big stuff. And you think you're fixed. It's only when you've been at home for a couple of weeks or a couple of months that you realize little stuff like, I don't know, again, metaphorically speaking, the, the bulb might have blown in the shed or the freezer's defrosted itself or something. The tiny stuff that you don't notice at the outset is the bit that's, that, that, that comes and, and affects you. So for me, my nose never stops running now. My fingers and toes are, are, are permanently cold. Um, I've got a condition called atrial fibrillation, which I'm sure a lot of people will have heard of. It's not uncommon, but it's not something that you, you really want to have for the rest of your life. I've got to live with that now because my heart is is never going to beat normally. It, it, it's It's going to flutter chaotically. I've done all the usual research into why it happens. And um, and, and what I can do to fix it, and there really isn't much of a fix. So I, I, I haven't taken drugs before, and now I rattle. Um, that has a psych- psychological impact on on somebody like me who's always sort of steered clear of pills and potions and lotions. But but that's the downside of it, Molly. You know that's 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 the downside. There are many many upsides. Um, um, I'm back on my spin bike. I'm doing it, you know, sensibly. I'm doing it, you know, within the within the guidelines of the cardiac team, uh, who seem very happy for me to be back on the bike. Um, I'm walking a lot. I'm 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 not working anymore. I'm I'm not quite semi-retired, but I'm doing some new stuff now. Some stuff that I'm loving. I've given up. I've hung up my corporate suits and my corporate tie. I've given away my posh car, and I'm living a much simpler, uncluttered life. That I'm that I'm enjoying. So I think the recovery has been has probably taken a year, but but not the physio, not the physical side of it. The physical side of it, with a load of great physio, took you know three or four months. The psychological side is the bit that um, that nobody sees. They can they can they can see or hear you wince with broken with broken ribs. Um, what what they can't see is um, is is the mental instability and the uncertainty that you that you go through um but am um, you know I'm, I'm i've made good progress and and more importantly i've managed to help a lot of other people who've done it far worse than me um and i'm and i'm loving doing that as well mm. so i think the thing i the, the thing i like to remember though is that if i'd spin on if i'd been on my spin boy bike that morning and, and instead of playing squash which would have been the norm i'd have been I'd, i wouldn't be here i'd have been on my own nobody would have known if i had had a daughter who bless her had, fro- had freaked out and, 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 and frozen rather than s- leaping into action, I probably wouldn't be here. If we'd had a squash club manager who hadn't, would you believe, the previous week been on a refresher course for what to do if people drop dead in the squash court. Um, and if there'd been no defibrillator working operationally um, as well as it was or as accessible, I wouldn't be here. So my entire life now is, is, is really focused on being thankful for, for small mercies that turned into a very large mercy. So very grateful and, and very grounded with it.
0: Was that quite a conscious decision? Was it almost like an epiphany when it was sort of, that's it, the corporate life is done, you're going to completely change the way that you live?
1: I had convinced myself that that, that was a major contributing factor to to what happened. I think levels of stress... When they're that high for so long i'd just become acclimatized to it i didn't even recognize stress mm-hmm. uh, I, I, but you know people who know a lot more about these things than i do when you explain the lifestyle that i had that i felt was well well within my capabilities uh, when you explain it they just say well you're weird you know that that's just not normal why why would you push yourself to that extent it never felt like i was I had a job to do, and I, I just did it to the best of my abilities. Um, so I think it was something of an epiphany, uh, in that I realised that that just wasn't good enough anymore, and I owed it to the people who I value most in life to not put them through another morning like that. Forget about what I had to go through. You know, I just wasn't prepared to sacrifice uh, the things that that I realised were, were were so valuable to me. So you know, I, I stopped the eighty hours a week. I set up a new business coaching people in, in, in mental wellness and and resilience. It's called wordplay. uh, and it's, it's a fairly new business. I'm, I'm working with some people who I love working with who've got astonishing, extraordinary stories of their own as well. So, you know, we're all working with people who need more resilience and more mental wellness. I'm focusing my energies on people who've been through the experiences that I've been through because so many people are just, just, have not emerged from it at all well.
0: So that's other cardiac arrest survivors? Yeah,
1: if anybody's been through it, or have, or have perhaps lost somebody, you know, I'm, I've, I've enjoyed a year of speaking to a lot of people having put myself out there to help. I've been, you know, delighted and, and tremendously privileged to have been able to work with other survivors who are just not well. I do say that I am battling still with an all-encompassing fear of, of it recurring. Um, I, you know, nobody can tell me really why it happened, so why wouldn't it happen again? Yeah, I've got I've got a defibrillator, but by the sound of things, I don't really want that to go off. Um, I do know it will fire eight times before it gives up on me. So I've got that, but but there is a fear that it's going to happen again. Um, I'm, I remain bewildered, Molly, by the second chance, the notion of being given a second chance. You know, why? And why me? And... And am I supposed to be doing something more worthy with it? I, I know it sounds... I'm not getting the words out all that well, but, you know, it—it—it it, it, it is all about... I've been given a second chance against all odds uh, for a reason. So I just want to make sure that I, I put the time I've got to the best possible use. And um, and I'm enjoying doing that. And that's that's something you've got to get used to.
0: And it sounds like you are doing that by with your work helping other people. Well, I'm...
1: I learned very early on and, and, the, and the overriding message that I've been able to share with people who, who you know, my, and my advice, I suppose, to anybody who might be in a similar position is, you know, uh, get talking. Um, particularly men don't seem to talk very well about particularly psychological or mental illness or, you know, instability. Get talking, guys. You, you, you know, we need to talk more. Um, the more, the more you talk, the more you realise that it's about getting better, not getting bitter. Um, it's easy to be bitter. You, you mentioned anger earlier on. You know, it, it, it's easy to be angry. Why me? You know, why me is a much more powerful emotion than, f- thank God I got through it. You, 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 you seem to be dragged back inexorably to the why me. It's easy to be bitter. It's, it's better to get better. Um, you will feel vulnerable. It, 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 but vulnerability is such a strength, I realise now, and I, didn't, I don't think I realised it before. Um, only the strongest people are strong enough to, to be vulnerable and, and, to, and to talk about that vulnerability. We've, we've got to get people who've been through this, who want to just sink inside themselves and bottle it all up. We've got to get them to talk. The more I've been able to talk to people, the more it's clear to me that they have derived benefit from just sharing my experience hearing what I did to try and get myself through it, the coping strategy that I developed, the belief system that I had to put together, I was very fortunate. I was able to find a quiet space deep down inside when it first happened and say, right, Paul, you've got to get through this. You've got people who are depending on you. You, 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 can't, you can't leave them. You've got to get through this. You've got to fight it. So I developed, I didn't know at the time, but I did, I'd obviously developed a belief system or a coping strategy that got me through the, through the year. And it's that coping strategy that I'm enjoying sharing with people. And so, you know, everybody, you know, feel, don't worry about feeling vulnerable. It, it's a strength. And I suppose the next thing is CPR. You know, somebody said to me, you need to go on a CPR lesson. And, it, and it, it seemed a little bizarre at the time, but next time it might be me next to somebody. And I don't want to feel like a muppet for letting them down. And I, and I, don't, think, I don't think we've yet kind of got there despite the amazing work. Of organisations like yours, the the British Art Foundation, which I'm a massive supporter of,
0: and and do you talk about it with your family still?
1: Yeah, w- w- Sophie, my eldest daughter, who who was there, obviously, and and did all did all the hard work. Took a while to to get used to it. I, I, you know, I did suggest that she perhaps got a little bit of professional help, but she's worked her way through it herself. And and I think again, talking about it has has been quite important. It's it's not a taboo subject we we had a big laugh at 10 45 on february the 23rd this year a couple of months ago which was i was quite surprised to hear people on various forums celebrating you, you've got apparently you've got to celebrate each birthday so rebirthday. so apparently that was my first birthday I, I didn't know that that was how it worked <laughs> but i do now so we celebrated my 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 rebirth day with a with a laugh and a and a joke and and um you, you, you've got to talk about it. And we do talk about it as a family a lot. In actual fact, the, the interesting thing is that my youngest daughter probably uh, took the longest to come to terms with what had happened. And I think that was because ironically she wasn't there. You would never want your children to watch you go through that. But in a, in a it sounds like inverted logic, but in a sense my eldest daughter, Sophie, who was there just felt she was there. I think for my daughter Ellie, who wasn't there, she she couldn't help. She couldn't, she couldn't lend a hand and I think yeah. you know if anything she took a little bit longer to get used to that and my wife um is just you know just a very special uh a very very special um lady and um and uh you know she never thought I was going to die <laughs> unlike unlike a lot of professional medical people um she never did and uh, is, a, is a very spiritual lady as well and, and, and as are our parents and uh and they, they 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 just knew it wasn't my time. I I don't know how they knew that, but maybe maybe somebody told them from somewhere. Mm. You know, will I die again, Molly? You know what? I just don't know. But I'm making every minute count. I'm relishing the second chance that I've been granted. I'm helping as many people as I possibly can, without wanting to sound you sort of a bit naff and syrupy about it. I'm just I'm just enjoying helping anybody who needs it and um i'm 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 ending the day feeling accomplished and and I, and i and I worked eighty hours a week, molly, and and can't remember. I can count on one hand the number of days that I ended feeling accomplished. Isn't that weird? I've completely inverted my life, and suddenly I feel accomplished
0: just to just to finish on, if you had one piece of advice to give to somebody who found themselves in a similar situation to you, what would that be?
1: It would be, I suppose, just summing up some of the points that I've tried to make. Focus on getting better. Don't get involved in feeling bitter. It's not worth it. Let it go. Don't worry about feeling vulnerable. You're going to feel vulnerable. You're going to feel like a rabbit caught in car headlights. Embrace it. Being vulnerable and talk about how you feel. Don't do what I did. Don't bottle it up. I bottled it up in the early days. And as soon as I started talking about it, everything became clearer. Everything became better. So, get better, not bitter. Don't worry about feeling vulnerable. Talk about how you're feeling and learn CPR because it could be you next helping
0: somebody. Fantastic. Thank you, Paul, so much for sharing all of that with us. And I hope that that's been a real help to anybody who's been listening. Paul was one of the 30,000 people to have had an out of hospital cardiac arrest each year in the UK and he probably wouldn't be here if his daughter hadn't started CPR. Doing CPR with a defibrillator can, in some cases, more than double that chance of survival. If you want to learn CPR, you'll find all of the information and easy to follow videos on the How You Can Help page of our website at bhf.org.uk. And during the COVID pandemic, just do chest compressions, no rescue breaths, all laid out clearly on our website. If you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, you can call the BHF Heart Helpline and speak to a nurse between 9 and 5 on Mondays to Fridays on 0300 330 3311 or email hearthelpline at bhf.org.uk. Thank you for listening and join us next time on the Ticket Apes.